from the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This is what they are going to proclaim to you today. This is God's word. Speaking of Christ, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, today as you use this word to transform us, as you use this word to renew our minds, as you use your word to convict and to conform us into the image of Christ, I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room would be receptive to the teaching. Especially, Lord, today as we consider the preeminence of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that every single person would adore him more than they did when they walked in this room. If there are those in the room who do not know Christ as Savior, Lord, I pray that today would be the day you first open their eyes to understand and believe the truth of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, for those who do know you, that are tired, that are distracted, that are bearing the weight of so many struggles that they have let their eyes slip from you. I pray for those who have too many things and that have allowed their possessions to become their attention, that they've allowed their hobbies to distract them, that they have allowed other things to come before Christ. I pray, Lord, that today they would see Jesus and see him as preeminent and that he would be preeminent in their life. And Lord, I pray for everyone who is downcast, that they would see Christ and be encouraged, and every person who is sorrowful, that they would have joy, and every person who is struggling, that they would have strength. We pray, Lord, that today, through your word, you would challenge us and change us. Lord, I pray for the men that are coming now to proclaim the gospel. I pray, Lord, that as they preach your word, they would do so faithfully, accurately, and passionately. We pray this in the perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Brother, would you come and share the word with us now? Good morning. Before we jump to our text, uh, if one were to summarize uh, Paul's goal in the book of Colossians as a whole, it would be stated most clearly in verse 28 of uh, the first chapter here. He states that his goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. Through growing in this maturity, the Colossians might be able to ward off false teachers that had sprung up in their midst, as well as to grow in good works, showing the fruits of their faith. 
So how is Paul then going to accomplish this goal? Or to put it another way, how does one become a better, more complete Christian? And Paul's main tool to make a mature believer is to remind them about essential truths. And that's what this passage is that was just read to us. He is reminding them and now us of who Jesus Christ is. Who do you worship? And I've been given the task just to focus on uh, verse 15 here, which states that he, that being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. So two points for me this morning. The first point is going to be that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The second point is that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Very simple for us. So first, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Image uh, is ekon or icon in the Greek, and that just means image as it is translated or likeness. And I want to ask the question, what is the main point of an image or a a picture or a statue or an icon? Why do we make them? Well, the main point is to manifest something. It is to make something known. For one example, if a class were learning about the cell in biology, uh, a teacher might show a model or an image of a cell so that they might better know it, to see what it looks like, that they might uh, be able to see the reality of what a cell is. And a student then can observe it, can study it. Right? What was once was microscopic and unknown is to them now visible and known. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you should be familiar with the Ten Commandments. Uh, And what does the second commandment say? He states that you shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. This is a grave sin to do so. One of the goals of this command was to make sure that the Israelites did not mistake in Yahweh God to be equal to his creation. God is not a cow, as the Israelites thought they might make him to be at the Mount Sinai. And he is not a star. He is not a tree. He is not a plant. He is not a bug. He is not a lion. And he is not a man. And there is such a great chasm between God and his creation that to Uh, equal him to it, is worthy of death, according to the Old Covenant. But since nothing in all of creation can compare to him, in his goodness and love, he makes himself known by sending his own icon, that being the Lord Jesus. By saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it is also to say that what once was unseen is now seen. God is spirit. He is uh, not material. He is not matter. He is eternal. In the beginning, there was God. And before anything was, God was. So how can I, how can we, uh, who were at one point non-existent, understand or comprehend someone who has never not existed? Think about that a little bit. For as Paul tells Timothy, God is the one whom alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. But in Christ, 
we have the one that was in the beginning with God, and that the one who was God, as John tells us in his famous prologue to his gospel. But I want to point to you to uh, verse 18 in John chapter 1, the end of the prologue. This is how he ends this. Again, he states, no one has seen God at any time. Again, no one can see God. But God, the only Son, whom is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him, or other translations say, he has made him known. Do you want to see what God is like? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know God? Look to Christ as he has revealed himself in his word. See how he talked. Read the Gospels. See how he acted. See his love, his humility, his power. John Calvin writes, For in Christ he shows us his righteousness, goodness, wisdom, power, in short, his entire self. We must therefore be aware of seeking him elsewhere. For anything that would set itself off as a representation of God, apart from Christ, will be an idol. So in light of that truth, that begs the question for myself and now to you, what do you compare God to be like? When I first ran into the doctrines of grace, and I was particularly confronted with the idea of unconditional election, I remember that night praying to God and saying, I cannot believe in a God like that. Maybe you've heard someone say that to you. Maybe you've shared the gospel or your faith with someone and they say to you, I can't believe in a God like that. Well, that person and myself, when I prayed that prayer, had just made God into their own image. So, who is your God? Is it Jesus as he has revealed himself in the scriptures or have you created another icon? Now to our second point. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. This title of firstborn is an unfamiliar one for our 21st century American ears. Uh, With a surface level understanding, one might conclude that Jesus is the first created being or the first thing born in creation. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will literally use this text to make that argument, as did their ancient counterparts, the Arians did, saying that Jesus is not God. Look, he is firstborn. He has been created. Though this word here can be in reference uh, to the firstborn child, to a family, as Luke does in his gospel, he describes Jesus as Mary's firstborn, because she was her firstborn child. But it does not have to mean that. For the firstborn, it is a title, and it is given to the heir. That is the main inheritor of what uh, the family owns. This title is given because it was custom to give your literal firstborn male the family inheritance. But if we know our Bibles, the firstborn is not always the firstborn. Just because one is the oldest child does not mean that they will receive the inheritance. A prime example of this is Jacob and Esau. Though Esau was Jacob's, uh, not, excuse me, not Jacob's, Isaac's firstborn, he did not receive the blessing of the firstborn. It was given to his younger brother, Jacob. And throughout the Old Testament, uh, God refers to the nation of Israel as his firstborn. 
As Exodus 4.22 says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. But Israel is not the literal first nation ever created on the earth. This title was given to show uh, the nation's great inheritance in knowing God and God's love for them. And in Psalm 89, God speaks of David, saying this, that I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings of the earth. But David was not the firstborn of the king, who was Saul. And he had no relation to King Saul. And David was not even the firstborn of his father Jesse, for he was the youngest of eight sons. But it was David who was anointed with oil and would take the throne after Saul. But Jesus, he is not the firstborn of the nation of Israel. He is not even the firstborn among the nations. He is the firstborn of creation. Or you might say, over-creation. Everything is Christ. Everything belongs to him. As the writer to the Hebrew says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So look around at everything. Think of all that you have, for it really belongs to Jesus. He is the head over creation and all that we have been given, it is a gift to us, and we are to steward it. And since he is the firstborn of creation, all creation must listen to him. And there are two appropriate responses to this. First is fear and trembling. If all belongs to Jesus, you will be judged on how you have managed his rightful inheritance. The second, though, is comfort especially for those that are in Christ Jesus. For many act uh, in this world, you can look around, it's not very hard, and they act as if the world uh, revolves around themselves. And there are many rulers that uh, act as if there will not be a day of judgment. But remember this, that no matter who is in the White House or in Albany or even in Garden City, all belongs to him. No evil shall prevail against Jesus. And though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Amen. 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 Well, good morning, church. Let's continue. Let's get, jump right into it. Um, I continue to look at this Jesus, this Jesus. The text that I've been given this morning is this. I'll read it once more. It's, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I've only been given ten minutes to preach from this text this morning. If you know me, that's definitely not enough. But have, had I been given 10 years, even if I had been given 10 lifetimes, I would still not be able to reach the depths of truth that are revealed in these two short verses. You see, when, when speaking about the deity of Christ, simply enough cannot be said. The wonder of these verses, the awe of what is being said is immense. It's too immense. 
These verses tell us about who our Savior is and, and serve both to make sin utterly sinful as well as give beauty to the gospel. And the reason is this, it's because when you know who the God you have sinned against is, you realize that truly you are rightfully condemned. And likewise, Christian, it's the knowledge and the comprehension of who this Jesus that died for you is that gives adornment to the gospel. It's what beautifies it. Now, I'd like to break this message up into three parts to make it simpler to follow along. First is Christ as the creator. Second, I want to look at Christ as the sustainer. And then thirdly and finally, Christ as the telos, as the telos. So let's first look at Christ as a creator. The theme of Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17 is simple. It is Christ. And what these verses say about Christ is clear, that he is God. Jesus Christ is God. Opponents and critics of Christianity will often target doctrines regarding the nature of Christ in order to discredit our faith and a doctrine which perhaps experiences the most attack out of any of these is the deity of Christ. The doctrine that Christ is God. However, right here, the Apostle Paul, who is the author of the epistle to the, to the Colossian church, he establishes before them that this Savior whom they serve is God. And firstly, he does this by explaining Christ's work in the very act of creation. Verse 16, look there, begins with these words. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. So who was it that created the breath of existence? Who was it that made all that is and all that ever will be? It is Christ who is the creator. And not merely a creator of some things as if, as if the Father created some things and then the Son other things. No, but rather Christ is the creator of all things, everything, visible and invisible. What does that phrase mean, visible and invisible? You see... There was a certain heresy prevalent among the Colossian church at the time Paul was writing this epistle to them. Many scholars believe that it may have included the worship of angels, as it says in uh, chapter 2, verse 18. And so in order to refute this heresy, Paul clearly established Christ as the creator of not only the visible, that is the material world, but also of the invisible, that is the spiritual world. World. He's the creator of thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, as it says. And this phrase, it often refers to spiritual forces such as angelic beings and demons. And so what is Paul trying to get at by saying this? The apostle Paul is emphasizing that it is not, and hear me on this, it is not the created which ought to be worshipped, but the creator that ought to be worshipped. And who is that creator? It is Christ. I mean, aren't we so prone to that? The Egyptians, throughout all of human history, read the beginning of Romans, we serve that which is created. The Egyptians, they serve animals, images. The Israelites, they come out of Egypt, and what do they make? A golden calf, and they serve it. What do we do in modern-day America? We serve our things, everything that was created. 
They're tempted here, the Colossians, to serve angels. No, serve the creator, not the created. Christ is the creator of the physical realm as well as the spiritual. This, again, is seen in the phrase, in heaven and on earth. In heaven and on earth. And this phrase, it alludes back to the very beginning of the Bible. And therefore, the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of existence. Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see here that it was Christ, and, and Apostle Paul is saying that it was Christ who was in the beginning forming the heavens and the earth. So if Christ created all things on heaven and on earth, in the spiritual realm, that's heaven, and the physical realm, that's earth. And Genesis, however, is telling us that God was the one who created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Then, then how are we going to reconcile this? And it's simple. It is this. It is because Jesus Christ is God. The God you read about in Genesis, in the creation narrative, is Christ. The very God whom we read about in the beginning of Genesis, the same God who came and died on a tree in order to secure the redemption of his people. The man Jesus who walked on the earth 2,000 years ago is the same God who created it. When the people of Israel rejected him and when the Pharisees spit on him and slapped him and cursed him and reviled him, they were not merely doing this to a man, but to the very God that created them. They crucified the very God that formed them. I mean, do you see that? Do you see the wickedness of man? And do you see the scandal that is the gospel? In the words of Peter, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is Lord of all. And he accomplished his work here on the earth and after he did, he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, to the throne that was always his from eternity past. Second, I want to look at not just Christ as the creator, but Christ as the sustainer. It's, it's not only say that Christ is the creator of all things, but here it's also say that he is the sustainer of all things. Verse 17, look there, it says this. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Brothers and sisters, and, and all of you who are outside the fellowship of Christ this morning, Jesus Christ is the sustainer of life itself. Try to fathom that for a moment. Do not understand this. Christ is the sustainer and the maintainer of the entire created order. Without Christ, all things, the very fabric of existence, would collapse in on itself. Why do planets keep their orbits? Ask yourself. Why do, why do seasons come and go? Why do molecules and atoms stay put? Why, why do our very hearts keep on beating? Do you wonder that? It's because Christ is the one who wills it. He is the sustainer of life. Truly, the world is in the palm of his hand. As one man put it, the, the reason that the universe is a cosmos and not a chaos is because of Christ. And he is before all things. And he is before all things. What does this mean? Before anything was, Christ was. He is God. 
He's not bound to the creation he made. He existed before it. John the Baptist testifies about the eternality of Christ. John, who was, who was born before Christ on the earth, yet says this about him, strangely enough, in, in John chapter 1, verse 15. He says this, He who comes after me ranks before me. Why? Because he was before me. Because he was before me. Before I was, John says, Christ was. Christ himself testifies to this, when he says this to the Father in John chapter 17, verse 5, he says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed, Christ, do not be mistaken, is God and existed before the world did. I want, I want us to understand that. I want, I want us to understand what I mean by Christ is God. I want you to understand who we're talking about here. I want you to understand what the scripture is saying when it testifies to the fact that Jesus is God. In the book of Job, Job questions God about his suffering, this great book on suffering. And Job, he questions God about his suffering. Instead of answering Job directly about his condition, about his state, God simply reminds Job of who he is. And he asks Job a series of questions beginning in chapter 38. He asks Job's questions such as, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Job, have you, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the, have the gates of death been revealed to you, Job? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? And God continues still. Who has cleft the channel for the flood or away for the thunderbolt, Job? Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, Job, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so then abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go? To which Job must answer, no. He says, Lord, these things are too wonderful for me. And he repents. People, I want you to imagine if it, if it were possible this morning for all, for all humanity to fill this room and be asked the very same questions alongside Job, then all must answer no, emphatically no, just as Job did. Were I to ask whoever can say yes to any of these questions to raise their hands, all hands must stay down, all but one. One hand may be raised amid a sea of humanity. There is only one who can answer in the affirmative. Only one can say yes, and that is Christ. For he can bind the chains of the Pleiades, and he can loose the cords of Orion. He can send forth the lightning bolt. He can enter the recesses of the deep. He has seen the gates of death. And he has put wisdom in the innermost being. Christians, this Christ, this Jesus who died for you is both Lord and God of all. He is God, a very God. Unbelievers, this Jesus whom you reject time and time again is your creator and your master. I will not ask and no one in this pulpit will ever ask you to make him Lord of your lives. It's a foolish thing. You don't make him your Lord. He is your Lord. Whether you want him to be or not, he is your master. He is divine. He is glorious. 
He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And last and briefly, our last point, Christ as telos. Christ as telos. Telos is the Greek word that means the end, the purpose, the fulfillment or the goal of something. It is where we get, we get the word teleology, which studies the purpose and goal of things. Look back to what it says in verse 16. Look there. All things were created through him. We touched on that already. But look what it says then. And for him. That one little word, for. Do you know what that has just done? It has just told us the purpose, the end, the goal, the very telos of the universe. And it is Christ. He is the whole reason for existence. We already saw Christ as the, as the past creator. And then we saw him as the present sustainer. But, but Paul, he's also presenting him as, as the future end. The future purpose of all existence. Men and women, this whole universe belongs to Jesus Christ. And it was created for him. I dare say that the entire universe is nothing more than a backdrop for the gospel of Jesus Christ. All things were created to glorify him. All things were created for him. We are not the center of the universe. He is. As one man put it, we are not the hero of this story. You're not the protagonist. It is Christ. I end then with this, not the applications of this text, but rather the implications of it. If what this text says about Christ is true and what it says is true, then your life apart from Christ is futile, worthless, pointless, meaningless. Men always want to find the meaning of life, right? They never will, not apart from Christ. He is the meaning of everything. Christ is God. To the Christian, that means he is a savior. And for the unbeliever, it means he is a judge. This creator, this king, this firstborn, this God saves sinners. Come then to him and be saved. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I've been given uh, Colossians 1.18 to try to explain, even though you know, I'm not worthy of this. Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I got just three points out of this text. For you this morning. First, Christ is the head of the church. Second, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And third, Christ is preeminent over everything. But before I start, I want to smoke a, make a small summary of what my brothers already talked about before me. The heresies that had infiltrated uh, the church of Colossae claimed that Jesus was one more of the spirits that came from God. The idea that Jesus was a human being was absurd to them. 
They also said that Christ was not enough to achieve salvation and that a higher knowledge was required. They practiced the worship of angels and they observed also Jewish ceremonial laws. Paul denies all these affirmations with this powerful passage that completely destroys any doubt or confusion about the true identity of Jesus. Paul begins by saying that Jesus is the image of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the very image of his substance. Jesus is the exact image of God. That is why he affirmed in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Paul also teaches us that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Paul does not say that the Son was the first being that was created. What it means is that Christ is the heir of the Father, and all things were created in him, through him, and for him. Christ is the creator. This is truth. This truth is affirmed by the Apostle John when he says, Everything was made through him, and nothing was made without him. Therefore, Jesus has preeminence over the creation, visible and invisible. And not only that he is the creator, but also he sustains the creation. We could say that he keeps all things together. All these that we see around us will blow up, will explode, if Jesus stopped holding it together. Just like the atomic bombs. Remember that? So it is good to know that Jesus keeps the universe together by the word of his power, isn't it? Ephesians 1.21 says, God the Father put Christ over all rulers, authorities, powers, and kings. The Father gave his Son authority over everything that has power in this world and in the next world. And now we get to the verse 18 where Paul teaches us about uh, that, that Jesus is the head of the body which is the church. As we have seen before, Jesus Christ is preeminent over all creation, visible and invisible. Now Paul says that Jesus is also the head of the body, that he is, that is the church. But I got a question for you here. How is Jesus the head of the church? How is he our head? There are many images used in the Bible to describe the church. It is compared to a family, it is compared to a kingdom, a vineyard, a herd, a building, a bride. But the most profound image is that of a body with Christ as the head. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that Christ is the one who controls each part of the body and he gives it life and direction. Christ also confers unity to the body. Christ strengthens and coordinates the gifts and ministries. Christ also ensures that we serve one another. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, that means an assembly or a congregation. It does not refer as the building. It's not a building. It's not a denomination. It is the group of people. The church is made by all those who have been born again and who believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior. So we have the universal church that is formed by all those people who believe in Christ around the world and the local church, which is formed by those who believe in Christ for salvation and who meet and congregate in the local building just like we're doing here. But what is the purpose of the church? 
What is our purpose? Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. According to this scripture, the purpose of the church is first to teach biblical doctrine. Ephesians 4, 12-16 says that the purpose is to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry, to build the body, unify the saints in faith and knowledge of the Son of God, so, so that we might not be like children who are easily deceived, but rather to mature in every sense, so, so that in everything we look more like Christ. Second, the local church is also a place of fellowship where Christians can coexist fraternally and honor each other, instruct each other, be benign and merciful to each other, encourage each other, and most importantly, love each other. The local church also should be a place where believers can celebrate the Lord's Supper, remember the death of Christ and his blood shed for us, just like we did this morning. Fourth, the local church is also a place that promotes, teaches, and practices prayer. In Philippians 4, 6-7, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Fifth, the local church is also called to proclaim the gospel for salvation through Jesus Christ. The church is called to faithfully share the message of salvation through words and facts, and to prepare the members to proclaim it. Sixth, the local church is also called to minister those who are in need, those who need food, clothing, and shelter. So if the church is the body of Christ and Christ is the head, I got a question for you. What the church should do? And I give that question to you. I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is to obey what he commands, to obey him, which is the head, because he is the commander-in-chief of us, of the church. The second point in this exposition is that Paul teaches that Jesus is the firstborn among the dead, the firstborn in the resurrection. But some of you might say, what happened to the little girl the daughter of a ruler in the synagogue of, in Mark 5, or the famous Lazarus, they raised again too, right? They died after they raised again. Jesus didn't. That's a big difference. Firstborn comes from the word uh, prototokos that denotes supremacy, honor, and dignity. That means that Jesus marks the beginning of a new creation, Jesus was the first to rise to never die. Jesus, with his resurrection, guarantees the resurrections that we will enjoy. The Apostle Peter, in his first sermon in Acts 2, says, God had promised David that someone from his own family would sit on David's throne as king. David knew this before it happened. That is why he said this about the future king. He was not left in the place of death. His body did not rot in the grave. David was talking about the Messiah rising from dead. So Jesus is the one God raised from dead. But um, another question for you. I'm full of questions. Why is the resurrection of Christ so important? Why is it? The bodily resurrection of Christ 
is of supreme importance and is the most transcendental event in history. Why? Because it is important. Because if he didn't resurrect, when he resurrected, he confirmed who, who he said he was. He, who he said he was. The Son of God. And when he resurrected, he confirmed it. In John 2.19, Mark 8.31, 9.31, 10.34, Jesus said that he would rise on the third day, and he gave specific details how it would happen. It is important for us also because if Jesus had not been risen, we don't have hope that our bodies will resurrect. We wouldn't have a Savior, and we wouldn't have salvation or hope of eternal life. For Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And in verse 16 he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So our eternal destiny depends on this historical truth. When Christ resurrected, he became the first of all those of us who will be resurrected. Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I leave, you will also leave. Amen to that, right? And my third point, Christ is preeminent over everything. He is, the, he is pre preeminent because he is the precursor and sustainer. He has the keys to death and Hades. He has authority over life and death. He is the governor over all creation. And he is also the head of the body. He is the firstborn of the dead in the kingdom of redemption. So he is preeminent and sovereign over everything. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Your last good morning. Good morning. Amen. I'm going to close this out here in, uh, in this passage in Colossians chapter 1 with verses 19 and 20, which read, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 19, For in him, in Christ, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. During the time that Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt as they were wandering through the wilderness in temporary tents, moving as God had led them, God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle. When the tabernacle was finished, we read in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We see in these verses that God's presence dwelt in this tabernacle, but this tabernacle was only a temporary dwelling place for the presence of God. Later on, when the people of Israel were established in the promised land, and King Solomon was going to build a temple for God, he says in 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. 
how much less this house that I have built. But God's presence did dwell in that temple for a time. These dwelling places for God were momentary, temporary shadows and pictures, but they were not the real dwelling place of God. For nothing in heaven or on earth could contain God. But this verse, Colossians 1.19, tells us that in Christ, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not only did the fullness of God dwell in Christ, but the scripture tells us that the Father was pleased for all of the fullness to dwell in him. Brothers and sisters, Christ is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and of the temple. Christ is the supreme dwelling place of God. God dwells fully in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as you heard this morning, is God. Jesus refers to himself this way in John 2. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jewish leaders thought Jesus was talking about the physical building, the temple. But we read in verse 21 that Jesus tells us he was speaking about his own body. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. The fullness of God dwelt among man. And again, this pleased God. In Matthew 3.17 at Jesus' baptism, the Father declares from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is not, as some of the false teachers in the Colossian church are portraying him, just some spirit, just some lower manifestation of deity. He is not an angel. Christ is supreme because in him all of the fullness of God dwells. Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. He is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 20. Through the Son, God also reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, thereby making peace through the blood of his cross. This whole passage that we've gone over this morning has been pointing to the preeminence of Christ in all things. Verse 15, we see the preeminence of Christ in that he is the visible image of God. Verse 16, Christ is both the agent and the goal of creation. 17, he is the sustainer of all things seen and unseen. 18, Christ is the head of the church. 19, Christ contains all of the fullness of God. When we get here to verse 20, we come to the culmination of the praise and the exaltation of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. All of those other points were building to this crescendo. Verse 20 is now showcasing Christ's preeminence in reconciliation. According to Webster's Dictionary, the definition of the word reconcile is to restore to friendship or to harmony after an estrangement. In other words, in order to have reconciliation, there had to be once a harmonious relationship that was broken or estranged in some way. We understand the idea of reconciliation in our time and in our culture, and the word and the concept of reconciliation was the same 
in the time of the Bible. The Greek word in the Bible for reconciliation used in other passages is the word katalaso. It's found in 1 Corinthians 7.11, stating that a wife who is estranged from her husband is either not to marry or is to be reconciled, katalaso, to her husband. In very similar passages to Colossians 1.20, where we are this morning, such as Romans 5.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul uses this same Greek word, katalaso, when speaking of our reconciliation to God. This is huge. This is amazing that man can be reconciled to God. But that is not the word that Paul uses here in Colossians 1 verse 20. Paul chooses a different word to use here. He uses the word apokatalaso. John MacArthur explains it this way. By adding this preposition to the front of the word, it intensifies the word. So that when you what you have here is the word reconciled, intensified. So that it means thoroughly reconciled, completely reconciled, or totally reconciled. As we heard, the reason Paul purposely uses this particular word here is to combat the false teachers in the Colossian church that are claiming that it could not be possible for a man to be reconciled by Jesus Christ alone. Paul, in using this intensified word, is leaving no room for debate, no room for discussion, no room for question. In using this word, he is leaving no room for you or I to add anything to the complete reconciliation accomplished by Christ because all of the fullness of God dwells in Christ the peace that he brings about by the shedding of his blood on the cross is totally and completely sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God totally and completely the whole of the Bible teaches that there is one way to be saved one way to be reconciled to God, and Paul is making it crystal clear here in verse 20, that it is through the blood of the cross of Christ. One preacher says it this way, the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ are inextricably tied together. Because he is supreme over all things, there is nothing lacking in our salvation. We are complete in him, Jesus is everything that we need. I will say it this way. Christ is supreme not in the sense that he is the best among many, but Christ is supreme in that he is the one and the only. He is supreme in creation because he is the only creator. He is supreme as sustainer in that he is the only one that holds all things together. He is supreme as the, over the head of the church because he is the only ruler of the church. And Christ is supreme in reconciliation because he is the only one able to fully and completely reconcile sinful man to a holy God. The Bible says it this way. In Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And Hebrews 7.25 says, He, meeting Christ, is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, through Christ, since he always makes intercession for them. Amen? The only way to draw near to God, the only way to dwell in his presence, the only way to have peace with the Father is through the Son, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. I have two applications for believers and one for non-believers. Believers, this should give us assurance. The supremacy of Christ in reconciliation should give you confidence and assurance in your salvation. The work is finished. God's wrath against you is satisfied. God is not looking to exact any payment from you. This truth should set us free to worship God to love others, and to be overflowing with joy. Point two, ambassadorship. Because you are free from working and striving to work out your salvation, you are free to serve God and to serve others. You are an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 says this way. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, the church, the believers, are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. If you are here and you don't know Christ, you are a non-believer. Be reconciled. The Bible constantly and consistently describes all of humanity in its natural state as enemies of God, hostile in our minds and alienated, separated from God. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because of this, we are estranged from God. Even worse, we are at war with God and we have no peace. But God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. Unbeliever, I implore you, be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. He alone can save, and he has promised that all who come to him, he will never cast out. Amen. Lord God, we praise you for you are good and you are righteous and you are holy. We thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for revealing yourself through your word. Thank you, Lord, for sending the word, Jesus Christ, the creator of life, to die in our place so that we and all who believe in him will be reconciled to you.
Lord God, if there are any here who do not believe or any here who have created their own image of who you are and what you are like, I pray that they would understand and know you. That they would know you. I pray that your spirit would create new life in them so that they would run to Christ for salvation and peace. And Lord, for those here that are your children, I pray that we would have a full assurance of our salvation because the work of Christ was perfect and complete. Because you are pleased and satisfied with the work of your Son, there is no work that we need to add to it. May we know that we are accepted in the Beloved. Sustained by you from eternity to eternity. May we find our greatest joy in obeying you, praising and worshiping you, and proclaiming your greatness and your salvation to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.